There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach specializing in career management, skill development, positive intelligence, and career crises. Well, we have a wonderful and well-known guest today. Ina Pinckney was the chef and owner of Ina's, an American food restaurant and a pioneer in the West Loop Market District that closed at the end of 2013. She is a frequent and welcomed guest on radio, local news, and cable television, has done interviews on shows in the United States, Canada, and Germany, and has appeared in a national Quaker Oats commercial as herself, the Breakfast Queen. Articles have appeared about her in local, national, and international newspapers and magazines, as well as trade and in-flight magazines. Her recipes have been syndicated globally and featured in many cookbooks. Ina has been a guest lecturer on entrepreneurship at Northwestern University, DePaul University, and the University of Illinois, and has been the keynote speaker at food conferences and culinary school graduations. She also speaks about breakfast trends for food companies. In 2014, Ina was awarded the Golden Whisk Award from the Women's Chefs and Restaurateurs Organization for Excellence in the Kitchen. She led a coalition of Chicago restaurateurs and chefs to support Chicago's smoking ban and co-founded the Green Chicago Restaurant Coalition for Restaurants in Chicago with Dan Rosenthal, for which they received Chicago Magazine's 2011 Green Award. Ina was named the 2008 SBA Woman in Business Champion and in 2020 received the Jean Bechet Culinary Achievement Award. She, in, 19, or tw in 2013, she published Ina's Kitchen, Memories and Recipes of the, from the Breakfast Queen so that her recipes would live in everyone's home. Now, besides writing a monthly column for the Chicago Tribune called Breakfast with Ina, a documentary about the closing of Ina's restaurant screened in 48 film festivals around the country. Despite the awards and acclaim she has garnered in her career, the most significant title she holds is Polio Survivor. Ina now speaks to Rotary groups about the late effects of polio in her effort to help Rotary and the Gates Foundation achieve their goal of the global eradication of polio. So with that introduction, welcome Ina to It's All About Skills. You know, now that you've read all that, Charlie, now I know why I'm so tired. <laughs> Well, you deserve all the introduction you can get because we everybody in Chicago just loves you. Thank uh, you. You are the breakfast queen. So, Ina, tell us a little bit about your background. 
Well, I did not bake my very first cake until I was 37 years old. And then I opened up a dessert business that did not exist in 1980. Um, I had 21 jobs in my life, Charlie, and I was fired from 19 of them <laughs> because I could never fit the corporate culture, but I didn't understand what that really meant. I only knew that I was running my departments differently than others. I understood the goal of the corporation, but I wanted my employees to be happier and more productive. And so I learned some skills along the way with those jobs that I was able to transfer to my entrepreneurial life. Now, did I know I was an entrepreneur? No, I had no idea. I only knew that there had to be a better place for me since the corporate world didn't fit my soul. Wow. Uh, at an early age, you contracted polio. I did. Tell us a little bit about that when it happened. And then a little later on, we'll, we can get into uh, the late effects of polio. Thank you, yes. Um, I was 18 months old on Labor Day, 1944, when my dad came in to take me out of my crib and I was unable to stand up. I tried another time with his arms outstretched and still couldn't stand up. And when he felt my forehead and realized that I had a burning fever, he was terrorized in that instant, knowing that the polio epidemic that was engulfing New York City was now coming to Brooklyn, New York. Um, he took me right around the corner to our family doctor, Dr. Suna. He held me tight across his midsection so Dr. Suna could do a spinal tap and had, uh, lucky for us, had a, a little laboratory in his office. And he said, yes, this is definitely polio. And they took me over to the hospital. But when my dad saw that children were put in isolation and families, parents were not allowed to see them except for one hour a week. Um, my father said, I cannot leave her here. And he took her home. And Dr. Suna said, I will keep her under my care. Mm -hmm. And so my life as, an, as a child was very challenging. I was not able to play with the kids. There was a certain amount of ostracism, you know, to the family as well. The question always arose, you know, where did my mom take me where the other mothers didn't take their children, where I was the only one in a, an apartment building that was teeming with children who got polio. And so sitting with adults for my first five years, I learned to be a committed listener and I learned adult conversation. And when I was six, um, it was a pivotal time for me because they said I was going to the hospital. Now, remember, I had listened to conversation and I knew in 1949 when I heard people say someone was going to the hospital, it wasn't to get better. It was going to die. And so I thought they were taking me to die. And at six, you can have no grief for a life not lived. And so I thought this was whatever it was. I got six of them. Other people got 42 of them. Other people got other numbers, but I got six. So I gave my brother all my toys and I said goodbye to everybody. Right. And when I woke up after surgery, I thought they made a mistake. <laughs> but in that nanosecond, I understood I had another chance. And so everybody in my life always gets a second chance. 
Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So you coped with the effects of polio as a child and you, and you, and you grew up, but, and what, what led to your interest in the uh, restaurant business? I actually had no interest whatsoever, except eating. That was what I did. That's what we did. Um, and it really was um, an accident that I um, got into the food business at all. I remember thinking about uh, the balloon delivery services of the time, 1980. And I was up on the roof deck of our building here in Chicago. And I said to my neighbors who were talking, what would you think about a surprise birthday cake delivery service? People send you balloons, they send you strippers, they send you singing telegrams. Nobody sends you a cake. Yeah. And they all went, oh my God, that's a great idea. So I went down to my apartment and I wrote down all the things I thought I needed to do to make that happen, whatever it was, because I'm a planner. You know, my superpower is that I'm fearless, but I'm never reckless because I'm always prepared, always prepared. And so I was reading the New York Times Sunday Magazine section, and there was a cake, a chocolate cake that had no flour in it, but a lot of chocolate. And I thought, oh, my God, I would eat that cake right now if it was in front of me. And I thought, what if this was the cake for my surprise birthday cake delivery service? What if this was the one instead of the old fashioned layer cakes with Kirschwasser and buttercream and dried out cake. What if this was the one? And the phone rang. Hi, Ina, my name is Diane and you don't know me. I live in the building. I was upstairs. I heard what you said. I would like to order your service for Friday. Wow. And I did what every entrepreneur does. I said, of course. Yeah. And then I had to figure out how to do it. Now I was starting the last of my 21 jobs the next morning, Monday morning. And so I had to figure out how to make this cake. I had never, ever made a cake. <laughs> I never separated an egg. I never beat an egg white. I never melted chocolate. And here I'm looking at this recipe thinking, okay, I could do this. And I tried it and it was a disaster. So I went out and I bought enough ingredients for three more cakes. And I said, if I cannot figure this out in three cakes more, then I will find a cake to buy. And by the third cake, I figured it out. And I learned the best lesson of all. If you can read, you can bake. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a perfect demonstration of one of the critical skills of being a production. You know, you have yeah. an idea and having an idea is nice, but actually taking it to reality is something else. And from what I know of you, you do that in spades. Thank you very much. And what, are, um, what, what, are, what are some of the other skills that you uh, found, uh, found that you needed to become a successful uh, restaurateur? Um, one of my skills, one of your skills is communication. Um, to communicate with my staff, honestly, openly, caringly about what was going on, um, they then bought into the way the restaurant needed to run and their part in it. So that was key. And then the biggest lesson of all came from a woman I knew who was a PR person. And I said, Nancy, this was on the verge of my opening my first restaurant. I had a bakery for 11 years and then I was ready to open a restaurant because I couldn't find a decent breakfast in Chicago. And I had said to my husband one day at breakfast, why can't anybody make a decent breakfast? This was the eighties. Coffee was insipid. It was greasy griddle with eggs and 
hash browns barely done and, and cheap toast. And, and he said to me, so let's get this straight, Anna. Every day you go to that place and you play with butterfly with sugar and eggs every day. Yeah. And I said, yes. He said, what are we eating? I went, oh, we're eating butterflower, sugar, and eggs. I said, I think I can open a breakfast restaurant better than anybody. And he said, go for it. And so I said to my friend, Nancy, I'm on the verge of opening a restaurant. What would you do, Nancy, who was a great PR person? What would you do if you were opening up this restaurant? She said, I would start collecting everybody's name and address. This is pre-email, way pre-email. And I would write a newsletter, just a one page, two sides. That's all I would do. I would write a newsletter. So I went home and I wrote out two pages, a little bit of selling, a little bit of humor, a little bit of marketing, a little bit of everything. And I faxed it to her the next day, faxes. I love faxes. And she called me up and she was breathless. She said, Ina, people pay me a lot of money for my advice and nobody has ever taken it. You are the only person who understood exactly what I was saying. And I went, this makes perfect sense to me. And so here we were every month, the first of every month, you could be assured that we would mail out this newsletter. And if I came across, and we hand wrote all of the addresses and it had to have a love stamp on it. That was part of it too, because in my logo, the apostrophe in the Inas was a heart. And so I made sure the heart stamp was on there to, to connect the branding of that. But I would write out the address. So let's say I was writing it out and I came to Charlie Jet. Yeah. I would take a little post-it note or write on the inside of this thing. And I would write, hi, Charlie, I was thinking about you. Hope you're okay, love, Ina. And you would open it up and you would go, oh my God, she remembers me. She knows me. She misses me. Let's go. Yeah. And it happened every month. I would write a note to about 10, 20 people and they would show up. And they loved getting this newsletter. We put them in the check presenters so that people would read them at table. And if there were four people at the table, four of them went into there so they wouldn't have to share. Oh my God. And they could take them or leave them. And then we had to go to automated um, addressing because there were it was already too many 1500 to 2000 was a lot and then finally when i was closing i had to go to email and i have 2600 people on that email list and my open rate is 48 percent in the first 36 hours that is unheard of in the newsletter business unheard of well, you were a power, you, you not only you used the newsletter and that communication device to get some information out, out there, but you actually personalized it, made it very, very special to the right. person who was, who was right. And because it goes out as an email, people hit reply and say, oh, this is just what I needed today. You know, your words of wisdom or that cartoon you put in there was so funny. And so, because now I have a completely different way of communicating with them because I don't have a restaurant, right. but I can still tell them things. I can still inform and, and educate and, and uh, delight them. You bet. So, and, yeah. and back then in early times, you didn't have the internet. It was all mechanical, the letter. By hand, by, by hand. And then uh, you even, you established yourself very well just that way. 
Yes. And then now, now comes the, uh, the, uh, the power of the internet and the email and it even gets better. It's all over. I watched the launch, you know, when I set it up for a, a drop and I watched the launch and somebody in Germany just opened it and somebody in Ecuador just opened it and somebody, I mean, it's just, it's thrilling to me. It's thrilling that people open up the, the email as soon as they get it oh, and then they pass it on. You're obviously having so much fun. It's yes. So much fun in doing this. Now, Ina, Ina, you're known as the breakfast queen. Now, where did that come from anyway? I've always wondered that. I gave myself the name, Charlie. <laughs> I gave myself the title because somebody said it one day and there was no restaurant like mine. Between the hotel dining rooms, which I loved, and the diners, there was nothing. Yes. So I took the middle of that and I hit it as hard as I could. Yeah. I took that niche and took it and made it my own. And somebody said to me one day, you're like the queen of breakfast. And I went, uh-huh, there it is. <laughs> I am now the breakfast queen. Well, and that... I defy anybody to go up against that. They couldn't. Yeah. Well, and you... so, yes, I branded myself early, Charlie. You did brand yourself. And you know, it's one of those things where if you say this is who you are, that's who you are. Right. And, you... and I could back it up. And you, oh, no kidding, kiddo. No kidding. So just tell us a little bit about your restaurants. You mentioned earlier the, the cakes and so forth. Tell us about Ina's Kitchen. So I brought the bakery with me into Ina's Kitchen, and um, it was an extraordinary operation. Now, understand, I never owned a restaurant. I never studied how to open a restaurant. I never read a book about a restaurant. But what I did know is how I wanted you, Charlie, to feel sitting in that chair. And I built the, the whole restaurant backwards to you. So when you walked in, how were you greeted? When you sat down, how were you greeted and how were you cared for? If you had a problem, how was that handled at the table? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to give you an experience so that when you walked out and we all said, thank you for coming to Ina's, you thought to yourself, boy, this was one of the best experiences I've ever had. And that's what we did. Yeah. If you wanted your coffee in a, a little bit of coffee in a heated cup, you got a heated cup with that much coffee. Mm -hmm. And when we saw the coffee going down to the bottom, we brought you a freshly heated cup with just that much coffee. We watched you carefully and we took care of your needs um, more th better and faster than you knew you had them. Wow, you really knew what the customer wanted and you catered right to the customer. I know when I was watching your video of when you closed uh, Ina's Kitchen, there was one scene, a very short, and I'm not sure you it was even planned, but this man gets up and walks out and stops and says something to you when you're at the cash register and everything. And it was like he was the only person in the world and the most important person in the world. And he, the look on his face when he talked to you and, and after he left, he felt that way, Ina. And yes. that, that to me is exactly what, uh, what Ina's Kitchen and the Breakfast Queen is all about. Yes, I, I agree completely. I bumped into a family not too long ago um, after some of the things were re relaxed here in Chicago and there was a mother, father and two kids and the, the parents waved at me and said, oh my God, we miss your restaurant so much. We miss them and blah, blah, blah. And the little girl 
who was, I don't know how old now, but she was very little because I closed eight years ago. He said, she said, daddy, daddy, is that the lady who gave me crayons? Is that the lady who gave me crayons so I could draw on the table? The answer is yes. Wow. You know, so I have that, that memory locked in. <laughs> I have so many fond memories of the people and your guests. You didn't have customers at your restaurant. You had guests. It we did. You had we did. But I also had rules that, I, that they appreciated. For example, um, the first time I saw four men walk in in suits and three of them took out cell phones as big as a shoe, I knew that that was the future and it wasn't pretty. So that was the day I said, no cell phones allowed at the table. If you need to get a call, take a call, please get up from the table and go by the front door and not disturb the other people. There's nothing worse than someone speaking on the phone at the table when you're all sitting there and kind of looking around. Yeah. And there were some people who were furious because there was an entitlement that if they had a phone back in 1991, they felt that they were entitled to use it anywhere and anyhow they wanted. And the answer was no, that was not the case. And the rule was gonna be the rule. Well, one day the former governor Blagojevich came into the restaurant and he was on his phone and I knew he was gonna be meeting people at the back table. And I said, oh, governor, good morning. I'm sorry, but I can't see you till you're off the table, off the phone, excuse me. And he looked at me and he, he thought I was kidding and he tried to get around me, but I boxed him out and I went, no, no, governor, I will not seat you until you're off the phone. And he backed up and he talked into the phone and he clicked it, flip phone and put it in his pocket. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah, really? And as I took him to the table, people in the restaurant applauded because the rule was the rule. rule. And so one day the FBI will release all the wiretapped phone conversations and you will hear him say, I have to get off the phone, I'm at Inus. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that one. I know a lot of stories about Ina, but I didn't know that one. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Ina's Kitchen was a real place in Chicago, and, and, and it was obviously a source of wonderful memories for you and a passion and for, at the time. When and why did you close Ina's Kitchen? It was time. You know, you really have to know um, when to fold them. Um, if I could have stayed two more years, I would have been an incredibly wealthy woman because the West Loop was moving in my direction. Uh, it was still over near Halstead Street where the con it condensed. Um, but you, you just know that there's a moment in time when it's, it's good to leave. And as I said, I'm fearless. And so I, I just chose the day. Yeah. And, and it, was the right, it was the right decision in every way in every way. So what is your your passion um, now and where did that come from? So my passion now is the notion that in my lifetime, I could see the end of polio in this world. And so I have committed myself to speaking for Rotary about the Global Eradication Initiative and I do my best because I know there's donor fatigue. If you think Rotary started collecting money for this, at the same time I was suffering from the late effects of polio, there was a confluence of moments for me. And um, I had started to feel muscle weakness. I had started to feel swallowing issues. Um, uh, 
mind-numbing exhaustion. And when I went to the doctor, they said, well, you know, you're aging. And I went, no, I'm in my 40s. This is not okay. This, something's going on. And then I read that there was a polio organization in St. Louis that was going to be having a conference. And I got in my car and I drove to St. Louis and I walked into a ballroom, hotel ballroom, where 350 people were sitting there all with the same issues. And I thought something is happening to us. And sure enough, it was determined that we were having what they call post-polio syndrome, that um, people who had been in wheelchairs and got out of wheelchairs were getting back into wheelchairs. People who wore braces and got out of braces are getting back into bracing. Um, and that was what happened to me. I was able to pass for normal for much of my life. There were people who didn't know I had a limp until I walked down the aisle and I got married. Mm. Um, and, and so this was a very different problem we were having. And here was no, there were no answers at all. No, there was no research being done. Polio was left behind. At the beginning, you know, in the 40s, the whole country was behind us. You know, we beat the Nazis, we can beat polio. And so we had all of this incredible groundswell of, of care. And then once it was sort of over, meaning there were no more infections and no more epidemics after 56, 57, um, then the March of Dimes went on to birth defects and other things. And we were sort of like, okay, now what do we do when we're here in the eighties? And so Rotary stepped in and th I thought, okay, I, I, can, I can help here. Somehow I can help. Even if I talk about the late effects of polio and why vaccinations are important, I can talk about this from a knowledgeable standpoint. So first I started using a brace and then I started using a brace with a cane and then I started using a walker and now I use a scooter. I use a wheelchair at home and then I use an electric scooter for distances. I will never regain um, what I've lost. I have, I have used up whatever little baby nerves grew to help the, the sick nerve when, when polio came in. So um, it's been a, a glorious experience to feel the honor of, of being listened to and know that I'm making a difference uh, and that the donor fatigue that they're feeling, um, I'm able to overcome that because they care so much. And you're doing a lot for that, I know. And, and I wasn't aware of, uh, of the, the problems of the late effects of polio. Uh, what, when, did that, when did that be kind of arise as, a, uh, um, as, as an issue? I mean, the in the 80s. In the 80s. In the 80s, when most of us who had polio in the 40s, yeah. uh, 30, late 30s and 40s, when we became of that age. Um, polio sort of went away in you and a person, but then later on it rears its ugly head again. Well, what happened is a, a polio killed a nerve, let's say, but the next door neighbor nerve said, oh, you know what, this nerve next to me looks a little sick. I'll send out a little shoot and maybe help it. And it kept it going for a while until that little helper nerve turned 60 years old and went, oh my God, I'm dying now. And so no more was there any stimulation and no more could your muscles, you know, react. Plus, you know, they told us to exercise. And if I could take back every hour of jazzercise I did in my pink leotards and my purple leg warmers, I would take it back because what I did is I wore out wore the out nerves. Oh, I mean, God, I went. But they didn't know. Confusion of you're building muscles and that sort of stuff that you're wearing out the nerves. Interesting, interesting observation. Uh, now, you, you've written some books, uh, particularly you've written a book called Ina's Kitchen. 
Yes. Memories and recipes from the Breakfast Queen. Tell us about that. I've seen it on Amazon. Tell us about it. Well, the reason I decided to do that is because when I was closing, I determined that people were going to miss my recipes, but they also didn't know about much of my backstory. You know, when you're in the business and when you're standing at the hostess desk all the time, you are wearing either a mask or a veil. And so it's important that they got to know the real me, even though I am real in everything I said and did at the restaurant, they had no idea about my upbringing and about how polio affected me. And so I wanted to be sure I did that and put some pictures in there when I was little. So I decided to do the book. Um, and I called on um, the best food photographer in town and he said it would take about a year. And I said, I have 10 weeks. And he went, what? I said, I'm announcing my closing on Labor Day weekend in 2013. I need a book to have in my hand the day that I announce it. He goes, 10 weeks, that's like not possible. I said, yeah, it's possible. It's all possible because we're gonna print it in Illinois. We're gonna bind it in Wisconsin. We're gonna do it right here. And he went, okay. He said, so send me your recipes. I went, no, you have to come here and you have to set up a studio in my upstairs party room. <laughs> and you have to take the pictures of the food coming out of my kitchen made by my people. Somebody orders a frittata, two of them. One goes up to you to be photographed. The other one goes to the table so Charlie can eat it. <laughs> and he went, you're asking a lot. I said, I know I am. And it was done in 10 weeks. Wow, wow. And it was done Ina's way. And it was seven, we sold 6,500 books. Money. of that then a then a printer because i self-published and then a printer a publisher called me and said we saw your book and we love it and so we want to reprint it with a paper cover and do national distribution wow wow you never know uh, you never know either and you also have a video breakfast at i uh, i love that that's where i saw uh, that man leave and you you didn't you did, you weren't acting when you when you uh, no. dealt with that man when he was leaving and so forth uh, you were being Ina, and you were doing exactly why people came to Ina's restaurant. But tell us about that video uh, of Breakfast at Ina's. So I got a, uh, after the article appeared in the Tribune, and I love the title, Breakfast Queen to Abdicate. <laughs> <laughs> Front page of the Tribune. Um, I got a call from a young woman. She said, my husband and I are documentarians and we read the article and we can't get it out of our head because we think there's more to this than just the story of you closing the restaurant. Can we come and talk to you? They had never been to the restaurant. They had never eaten my food. And we sat down and they talked about what it would mean to have this documented. And I thought three things. Number one, my staff was used to having cameras around because we got a lot of global press. And then my customers were used to having microphones in their face because we got so much local press. And then selfishly, number three, I thought I'll at least know what happened here the last 31 days yeah. because I might be too busy to notice. And so I said, yes. And I said, but I have, there's two promises that have to be made and kept. I promise to tell you an honest, open and transparent story if you promise to retell it with integrity. Mm -hmm. And we both kept our promises. Oh my golly. Well, I know you can get that video on Amazon. 
I know. Amazon, because, yes. Breakfast at Ina's. And I, I know because I got it. I bought it. <laughs> Thank you. Your customers, you can, I cannot stay away from what you do and so forth. Thank you, Charlie. What are some of the other things that occupies your time these days? Your, your, well, I'm, here is it. And this is without any ego whatsoever, because you know me well enough to know that. I am surprised at how relevant I still am. I'm 78 years old now, and I get calls all the time about doing something. I just did a big project for a coffee company who said you were one of the best operators. So we want your advice on how we can reach out to operators about our coffee. I got a call from um, a TV station. Would I be on a panel uh, virtually? Uh, and I said, of course. I try to mentor young women chefs because it's a hard road. And so I have about four or five in my stable right now that I take care of and watch over and they call me for advice and counsel. Um, and so I love the fact that it, it matters. What I say matters. Uh, a company sent me some food, a food delivery service. Can we get your take on all of this stuff? And I wrote a very thoughtful, constructive and critical you know, assessment of what they sent me and why I think they could do better on this and how this was good. And I think the labeling needs a little attention and blah. And people care about my opinion because they know it comes from my heart and it comes from my, my desire to do good, to do good. Well, I know one thing I know about you is consistent with what you're saying is you are very authentic. You're genuine. And people are naturally attracted to you. They pay Thank attention you. to you. And they don't pay attention to you because you, you are Ina and you're the breakfast queen, but you are a naturally uh, attractive, attractive, genuine person that, that you have a magnetism about you that people love. Thank you. And, I love that. and my wife loves that. Thank you. Love to get together with you. Charlie, I forgot to say one thing about, about my, I had two jobs at the restaurant. You know, let's go back to some skills here, right? Because that's what you're the best at. Okay. So I had two jobs. One of them was to fill up the seats. And so I did that with guerrilla marketing. I never wanted to be in the food section of the paper because it has the lowest readership and the most fickle. Where's the next big thing? They always want to go to the next big thing. Yeah. I wanted to be in business. I wanted to be in human interest. I wanted to be in real estate. And once I even got into sports, I was thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, that was really important. How do you fill the place up? You have to get new eyes, new people who don't know you. And people who are reading the sports section might not have heard of me. And so there I was, and they would then check it out. So number one, how do we always fill up the seats? My number one job. My number two job, was how to metabolize anxiety. So when you walked in the door, you would never know that my cooler wasn't running at the right temperature. I had already figured out how to fix that. Yeah. You would never know that there was a leak in the basement and that the plumber was on its way. Yeah. You would never know what was going on. And the staff would look to me to be sure that what was going wrong was being fixed and yeah. they knew they could trust me with that. You never put your problems on the table. No, they all knew the problem. 
at the, at the restaurant, but they also knew I was fixing it instantly. I wasn't going to let it go. So they would look at me and they would go, blah, blah, blah. And I go, done. That's a skill too, Ina. It is a skill. And I'm very proud of those two things. Yeah. Very proud of those two things. That's fantastic. The other thing that is a skill is making sure that your vision is not tunnel. Mm -hmm. By that, I mean, I got a call one day and um, they said, would you be uh, willing to put up a table at this big charity event? It's a judged charity event. And um, we, we would like you to be at the table. Now I had done so many of these and it reached a point where they were really too hard on me and too expensive for me to keep doing them. But the minute I was about to say no, mm -hmm. but when she said it's gonna be judged, I immediately said, oh, can I be a judge? <laughs> I moved the blinders totally away from that one issue. Be a, can I do it? No, I can't, but I never said, no, I can't. I just said, can I be a judge? They were thrilled. Oh my God, you would be a judge for this? That would be great. Wow. And so I got to do what I needed to do, which was bring the name to help the charity, number one, always. And number two, I still had my name attached. Mm -hmm. So I showed up, not in my whites, but showed up, ate a bunch of chocolate, judged and went home. <laughs> so that's really important to say don't always accept what's in front of you yeah widen your vision widen your your idea of what could be you know that sounds like some of the advice that you would uh, you would impart to a group of high school seniors who are graduating and suppose Ina was up uh, giving a high school graduation address what would be the uh, three or four main points that you would like to stress? I mean, of course, tunnel vision would be one. Well, here's one that I live with. I live by this one, besides my mantra about always being fearless, but never reckless. The number two thing that I live by is it takes less energy to be courageous than it does to be afraid. I love that. And that I always use the example of Oprah. 20 years, Oprah was on TV lamenting that she was afraid to get her ears pierced. Huh. It was, it came up year after year after year. And she goes, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then finally, somebody said, you're gonna do it. And in 30 seconds, it was over. She spent 20 years being afraid. <laughs> and in 30 seconds, it was over. She had all that energy to reclaim. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And that's really important. It takes less energy to be courageous yeah. than it does to be afraid. And then when you asked me earlier about how did I know it was time to, to, to leave, life is like baking a cake. Mm -hmm. It's raw for a really long time. And it's perfectly baked for a very short time. And it's overbaked forever. Oh my gosh, I love that. And so you have to pay attention to when it's perfectly baked. And then it's time to wave the flag. And then it's time to take it out of the oven and eat it. Oh my golly. Well, and you know, as a baker, you know. Oh my. It's overbaked forever if you're not paying attention. And that's with life. Yeah. Pay attention. Yeah. Pay attention. And you've been a living example of that. And you and you're not over either. You're you're no. still doing it. Yeah. You're doing it. Ina, you know, how can someone get in touch with you? 
how can someone get on your list? How can someone uh, find? All they have to do is write to me at the Breakfast Queen at Gmail. The Breakfast Queen at Gmail. The Breakfast Queen at Gmail.com, and that'll get to I'm. Right. But I want everybody to watch the film. I think they'll learn so much because I have a lot of a lot of advice in there. For example, there's one moment when I say women change the culture. Yeah. And I talk about that in terms of running a business or running an operation or a department. Women change the culture. Yeah. And the other thing I always say, don't ever mistake my softness for weakness. Oh, I know you're tough as hell. But I don't have to exert it. No because everybody knows it's there. Oh, I know, you're wonderful. And it's the video is Breakfast at Ina's and it's available. On Amazon. Go out and get that. You will not be disappointed. You'll be able to be with the breakfast queen anytime you want. <laughs> Ina, this has been wonderful. And I wanna thank you so much for being our guest today on It's All About Skills. Uh, it, this has been a pleasure, a pleasure for me to be with you uh, just for this short amount of time. Well, Charlie, I feel the same. And thank you so much because a lot of people don't understand the skill set that it takes to be an entrepreneur. They think, you know, those are only about corporate doings. But let me tell you, there's a lot of skill sets in everything that we have to do. And you're still using those, even though you're- Every day. Well, as for me, you know, I'm Charlie Jett. I'm uh, an internationally certified career coach and I specialize in career management, skill development, career crises, and positive intelligence. And you can get in touch with me through my website, charliejetcoaching.com. That's charliejetcoaching.com. So I wanna thank you all for listening today and we'll see you next time as we discuss the critical skills on It's All About Skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.